0: This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Our text this morning is Luke 2, starting in verse 22. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we are thankful to be here this morning uh, to celebrate the start of a new year, celebrate the... uh, to continue to celebrate the birth of our Savior, and uh, we praise you and thank you for this uh, privilege to be here, called as your people, to sing your praise, to open your word, to celebrate uh, the Lord's table together today, and to rejoice in fellowship together as a foretaste of our promised inheritance in heaven. As we turn to your word, I pray that you would uh, shine your light on us to uh, reveal what is in our hearts that you would illuminate this text for us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, so that we may respond with obedience and faith. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. So this week marks the end of the Christmas season. Uh, For those who celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, that's uh, commemorating the visit of the Magi to uh, uh, the young child, uh, Jesus. Uh, That's in Matthew chapter 2. That is actually on the 6th, so Saturday would be the, the epiphany. So even those stragglers are facing the end of the festivities as well. Uh, it's a bit of a letdown in the week after Christmas. You know, you uh, take down all the decorations and the house looks a little bit emptier, a little bit sadder, uh, at least mine does. Uh, you remark how quickly it all seemed to go this year and, and you promise yourself that you'll do better next year to slow, slow down and to enjoy the season. Uh, but it always seems to go quicker than we expect. Then we move on. Christmas time is over. Real life returns. But is Christmas something we should or can really move on from? Is it not more than that? We come to the end of our uh, sermon mini-series uh, called the Christmas Hymn Book. Uh, that in these first uh, chapter and a half or so of Luke. Um, Today's text is technically part of the Christmas story, though it's a part that most people kind of gloss over. You may not have heard much taught on this. Um, And it technically takes place about a month and a half after the birth of Christ. Um, In this account, we see the lives of four, really five, faithful Jews whose paths intersect in the temple courts in Jerusalem in a way that still resonates 2,000 years later. So friends, as we consider this text today, two statements should, I hope, be crystal clear in your minds. First, that the birth of Christ isn't just a nice holiday story, but is truly the long promised fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And number two, you do not get to remain neutral about this reality. Now for those taking notes, uh, our text has four sections uh divided it as as such first the faithful parents in verses 22 through 24 the patient saint in verses 25 through 35 the devoted widow in verses 36 through 38 and then the favored son in verses 39 and 40 the faithful parents the patient saint the devoted widow and the favored son may the holy spirit grant us illumination as we receive his inspired word this morning. Look with me at Luke 2 starting in verse 22. Really starting in verse 21. Luke 2:21. And at the end of 8 days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So first, the first people we encounter in this passage are Mary and Joseph, the faithful parents. In verse 21, we see that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, a command that dates back to God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. And he was named Jesus, just as Mary and Joseph had been instructed in their separate angelic encounters. Now, don't miss the, these actions, however mundane, are acts of faithful obedience on the part of these parents, both to God's written command and to his spoken word. Not only that, but in another sense, these were acts of obedience on Jesus' part as well, though obviously as a baby he couldn't really control the... Uh, events from a human standpoint. One commentator noted that circumcision was given as a sign of the males of Israel that they were sons of the covenant. Consider this here that we have the eternal son of God, the second member of the Trinity, more a son than any of Israel, who submits himself in his humanity to the sign of sonship given to God's covenant people. This would be the first of many ways that Jesus would identify His people in order to fulfill all righteousness. Not only that, I missed. I have a long page. Sorry. Not only that, but the text says that Joseph and Mary traveled to Jerusalem to fulfill the law of Moses further by obeying commands that were related to. Purification and presentation the text says that at the time of their purification or her purification, depending on how you translate it that they uh, went to Jerusalem. this is referring to Leviticus twelve uh, Leviticus twelve uh, in, in, in Leviticus twelve Moses instructs the people about uncleanness after childbirth for thirty three days after her infant son is circumcised a New mother is considered ceremonially ceremonially unclean, but after that point, she is to bring a specific offering to the temple. Now, Leviticus twelve six six through eight says this, and when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle dubs or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Notice the exception here. If the mother or father cannot afford a lamb... They can bring two birds for their offering, two young pigeons or two turtle doves, which should make the 12 days of Christmas ring a little bit different for us. So, what does Luke say in verse 24? They came to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This tells us that Joseph and Mary were poor, they didn't have the resources. But this didn't hinder their obedience. They sought to be faithful, even in the smallest detail. But remember that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.4 that it's impossible, really, for the blood of bulls and goats or turtle doves to cleanse us from sin. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament is, was not in and of itself the thing that took away the sins of God's people. Rather, it was a system of signs and symbols that pointed to the future when God would provide the means of washing his people uh, of their sin. It is ironic to note that Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a lamb for sacrifice, yet in their arms they held the very lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Not only did they come to the temple to make sacrifice for purification from sin, according to the law, but they also came to present their baby to the Lord. We find this in our reading earlier from Exodus 13. If you recall, this text in Exodus follows the tenth plague of Egypt, the death of the firstborn. God instructed his people to cover their doorposts with blood from a spotless sacrifice, a substitute, if you will, in order for their children to be spared. As part of the commemoration of their act of salvation in Exodus, God commanded that all the firstborn sons of Israel from that day forward would belong to him, both man and beast. The animals would be sacrificed, but the people would be redeemed. Now, later in the Old Testament, God actually claimed the men of the tribe of Levi, the priesthood, as the price of redemption for Israel's sons when he established them in the land. But the people were still expected to bring their sons, their firstborn sons, and present them before the Lord, offering them for his service. It's also interesting to note that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover meal, commemorating God's miraculous work of rescue, was the very meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the night before he submitted himself to be a ransom for his brothers. As we celebrate our own version of this meal later this morning called the Lord's Supper, we will be commemorating God's redemption of spiritual Israel from slavery to sin through the sacrificial death of his only begotten Son. As Paul writes in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He himself came to be our sanctifying sacrifice and our redeeming substitute. Now Joseph and Mary had come to the temple to fulfill the law as faithfully as they could. Even though they had experienced strange, miraculous, unprecedented things surrounding the birth of their baby, they knew that they were not exempted somehow from obeying the law of God. They simply submitted to God's will for their family and honored him and their decisions and actions. They are called righteous in in the text in Luke and in Matthew. There's something profound and powerful about godly parents who live this way. The selfless shepherding of a father, the quiet submission and faithful care of a mother, who have committed to each other and to the Lord that they will raise a family of faith, is itself remarkable and, frankly, revolutionary. Whether rich or poor, we are called to live holy lives and build godly homes by the grace and power of God's Spirit at work within us. May we find in this very young couple, teenagers, Encouragement not to overlook the simple daily acts of obedience that God calls us to make. Now, as this faithful couple carried their one and a half month old baby into the temple complex, they were approached by a stranger with a smile on his face. So let's turn to the next few verses and look at that. Let's start in verse 25. He took him up in his arms and blessed God. Let's stop there for a second. Let's meet Simeon. Now, while this text doesn't explicitly say that he's an older man, most commentators assume by his statements that he probably is in his final years. Simeon is described as righteous and devout, a description here that points to a godly life, lived properly by God's standards, someone who has trusted God, who has believed God and who was credited to him as righteousness, just as, as it was for Abraham. This is similar to how Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1. So we, see, we should see Simeon as yet another example of the faithful remnant of Israel, who is looking to the Lord for their salvation. While so many in their nation have apostatized, have, have fallen into formalism, have fallen into legalism, he has preserved a remnant who are faithful to his word and who are looking for his salvation. Simeon is one of these. Verse 25 says that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, consolation here refers to the comfort and joy that occur when salvation is accomplished, when fears are stilled and strivings cease. This consolation is promised through the writings of the Old Testament prophets, but we can see some particular examples in the book of Isaiah. Um, if you want to follow with me, just go ahead and take your order of worship and stick it in Isaiah because we're going to be there a few times today. Some, some commentators call Isaiah the fifth gospel because it's so rich with messianic prophecies and it's, I think that's true and it's a blessing. Um, Isaiah 40 verse 1, Isaiah 40 verse 1 says this, comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort my people, says your God. You'll recall these verses are also associated as a prophecy of the forerunner, John the Baptist, as we've discussed in past weeks. Notice also this word glory. We'll come back to that in a second. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In Isaiah 49, Verse 13, very briefly we see this uh, praise here. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. I want to keep reading, I'm not going (laughs) to. Isaiah 61 Verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to grant them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they might be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I would also note for you that a few chapters later in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah, reads this passage, and then says to them, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Israel and it's here. It is here now. Now, as Simeon appears in our text, this is the only passage he is in, in the scriptures. This is the only time we see him. It's a cameo appearance by Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit. Don't miss the fact that the Holy Spirit has been very active in our in the the Gospel of Luke so far, and continues to be. This is a theme of Luke, how the Holy Spirit is at work through the ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of his apostles as he establishes his church. The Holy Spirit is at work in Simeon, giving him a direct and personal revelation that he would not die before laying eyes on the promised Messiah, God's anointed one. So, Simeon has been waiting. We don't know for how long. Uh, It's safe to assume that He's probably often entered this temple court, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the men, looking around, looking, wondering if today would be the day when the Messiah would appear. In a sermon on the same passage, Alistair Begg actually imagines that Simeon might have even come, become a bit of a joke to the regulars around the temple. Oh, there goes old Simeon. He just doesn't give up. Hey, Simeon, seen any Messiahs lately? But nothing deterred this patient saint. Nothing discouraged him. Why? Because he believed God. He believed that God would keep his promises to mankind, his promises to the house of Israel, his promises to Simeon himself. And on this day, Simeon was compelled by the Spirit to come to the temple courts And on this day, he saw a young couple walking toward the priest, carrying a baby, and Simeon knew he's here. Now, verse 28 says that Simeon walked up without an introduction and took the baby into his arms and blessed God. Now, if you've been a young first-time parent, maybe you are one right now, the thought of strangers touching your baby or taking your baby from you may seem alarming or threatening. (laughs) But... For some reason, these sweet parents saw the look on the old man's face and were at peace. Simeon held the infant, the infant Messiah, and he spoke to God. In a sense, Simeon himself took the baby and presented him to God. And let's look at his prayer. It starts in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This prayer is sometimes referred to as the nunc dimittis, of course, from the Latin uh, for the phrase, I believe the phrase meaning now dismiss. Simeon praises God and acknowledges that the promise God gave him has been fulfilled. His eyes have seen the promised Messiah. And now he is able to accept death with a grateful and peaceful heart. Now this may be a startling phrase, but it shouldn't be. There is no way to have true peace in the face of death unless we have looked into the face of Jesus David Murray writes uh, that knowing Jesus helps us to die well. Knowing that we have a Savior who has defeated death itself. And let's be clear here. Simeon is not seeking death in some morbid sense, nor should any of God's servants seek death. But like a good servant, Simeon is submitting to his master's will. He has lived long enough to see the promise fulfilled, and now he is ready to hear his Lord's command. To release him from duty. Simeon says his eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. It's important to note that Simeon doesn't need to see the full story to know the ending. He just sees the baby. But just knowing the Messiah has finally come, he believes that God will save his people. In this way, Simeon falls in line with the other saints described in Hebrews 11.13 who died in faith, not receiving, the things they pro- not receiving the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they themselves were strangers and exiles on earth. This promised salvation Simeon describes in verse 31 was in the presence of the peoples because it was for all the peoples. In verse 32, he says that the salvation would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. Now this phrase is packed with Old Testament residents. Let's jump back into Isaiah again. How about Isaiah 42? I told you, keep your bookmark there. Isaiah 42. Talking about the Lord's servant. This whole section from Isaiah, about Isaiah 40 to 60, is talking about the servant of the Lord. It's full of prophecies and, 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 and pointers towards Jesus. Look at what Isaiah 42 says. 42 verse 1. And the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The servant of the Lord comes to bring light to the nations. How about Isaiah 46, verse 13 Isaiah 46, verse 13, or verse 12, I guess we'll start there. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. I always appreciate the prophets. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Or even Isaiah, just the chapter before, Isaiah 45, starting in verse 21. The word of the Lord says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. He's talking about, he's he's been talking about the weakness of idols. How idols are nothing, and how they accomplish nothing. And how he is the true God. And this is what he says. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who is declared of old? Was it not I, The Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth, for from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. A light to the Gentiles. Glory to Israel. Simeon says Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. This word revelation is uh, related to the word apocalypse, a revealing of what had been hidden. This light would also be a glory for Israel. Light in the Old Testament was associated with God's radiating glory. For example, the shining glory of God reflected in the face of Moses. God's salvation would reflect his greatness in Israel. Not Israel's greatness, but God's greatness reflected in them through the work of the salvation that would be brought by the Messiah. This coming Messiah would be a sign of God's glory revealed in his gracious. Gracious covenant faithfulness to his people, as well as an invitation to those outside of the people of God to come in and experience his gracious welcome. The prophets of old attested to this dual reality of the Messiah's reign, and the prophet Simeon affirmed, this baby is the embodiment of that revelation. Now in Luke 2, verse 33, it says the boy's parents marveled at what was said about him. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, you'd think after multiple angelic declarations, they might start getting used to it, but that's not the case. Rather than become jaded or numb to these words, Joseph and Mary are astounded by them. Now, I have to ask, Christian, do you still marvel at the salvation that Jesus brings? Or have you started to take for granted that God would save a sinner like you? We would be in a sorry state if God's grace stopped being amazing in our eyes. If you find yourself unmoved by this Christmas miracle, it may be a good idea to remind yourself exactly what you've been saved from and how much you do deserve the just wrath of God for your sin and rebellion. The fact that God chooses to save anyone should be astonishing to us, but it's a fact all the same, and we are the heirs of that undeserved inheritance. Simeon then turns and blesses Mary and Joseph and speaks to Mary specifically in verses 34 and 35, adding some perplexing and perhaps worrying details. To his prophecy. Let's look at verses 34 and 35 of Luke chapter 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon declares that Jesus is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now, there is some slight disagreement on how best to render this phrase, actually, because some interpret it as saying that Jesus will bring down some while uplifting others. This would seem to continue the theme of of Mary's song back in chapter 1. And we see some of this, actually, in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. This is what Isaiah writes. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isaiah writes that God's work would be hard for many in Israel to accept, that it would break them down. Peter would pick up on this idea in 1 Peter 2 as he describes the church as being a building of living stones built on Jesus, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. However, as much as we see this idea of the mighty falling and the humble being raised up, other commentators try to connect these two phrases in Luke 2.34 linguistically, stating that Jesus would be for many, that he would cause many to fall and then rise. This idea also can be found in Scripture. Hosea writes in Hosea 6, verse 1, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. The Greek word for rising in in Luke 2, 34, is often associated with resurrection. In either case, it seems clear that those whom God raises up must first bow themselves down, low in submission and humility before him. I think both things are going on, actually, in this phrase. Because there are some who will fall on the rock of stumbling never to rise. But there are some who need to fall on the rock of stumbling to realize their sin so that they may repent, humble themselves, and be lifted up. In fact, that's the path that all Christians must walk. That's the narrow gate that we must all walk through, isn't it? We have to come to the point where we recognize we have nothing to offer of our own strength or will or abilities. We have nothing that God hasn't already given to us. Our best works, our great righteousness we could accomplish on our own is garbage, is not worth considering. It is only God's grace that lifts us up out of the pit. Next, Simeon says that Jesus will be a sign that is opposed, so that, many thoughts, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Uh, we'll set the parenthetical phrase aside, we'll get to that in a second. Simeon prophesies that Jesus will not have an easy road as Messiah. Not only would he cause many to fall and or rise in Israel, but he would himself be a sign that is opposed You may recall what Jesus said when the crowds and religious leaders demanded a sign that he was the Christ. He he said an adulterous generation demands a sign. You will get one sign from me. It's the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish three days and and then was raised up so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth and then raised up again. Jesus himself would be that sign that is opposed. The message of this gospel is that Jesus lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, and then was raised to life, the sign of Jonah. That message was immediately opposed. In the first generation of the church, it was opposed. We see that in places like Acts 4 and Acts 17, where the message of the gospel was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who were being saved, both Jews and Greeks, Paul writes that it is Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. Why would Jesus be so opposed? Well, Simeon says that he will reveal the thoughts of many hearts. This word for thoughts is often associated with negative or sinful thoughts. So what we see here is that Jesus will be the light that shines and exposes the sin and rebellion that people are hiding. This is exactly what John says in his gospel. In John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. That's why John later writes in the first chapter of his epistle that in order to have fellowship with each other and be cleansed from sin, we need to walk in God's light. Jesus is the light that reveals the hearts of men. In addition to that, we who are believers now walk in the light of God's word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Simeon prophesies over the baby Jesus that his ministry would be a dividing line for everyone who encounters it, and it still is. See, even now, more than 2,000 years since Simeon made this declaration in Luke chapter 2, every man, woman, and child who hears the gospel must make a choice. Do you believe that Jesus is the anointed king and Messiah promised in the scriptures or not? Now, over the last century or two, it's become increasingly popular to present Jesus as a good moral teacher. An example of personal sacrifice, a social revolutionary who sought to overthrow the oppressive power structures, or, very commonly lately, a symbol of love, acceptance, and tolerance. Christianity is just one religious option out of many that can all coexist. But the reality of Jesus goes so much deeper than that. A good moral teacher, an altruistic example, doesn't demand your unflinching allegiance. Jesus does. A social justice advocate or vague spiritual guru doesn't expect your worship. Jesus does. Why? Because Jesus is God. And he absolutely claims so. And those claims have implications. The first of which being that such claims do not leave you room to be neutral. You can either accept them or reject them, and each one of those decisions has consequences. My friend, what will you do with this Jesus? He didn't stay a baby in a manger. It's easy to ignore and explain away a baby in a manger. He grew up and became mighty in word and deed teaching with divine authority and performing miracles that only God can do before dying unjustly on a Roman cross according to the predetermined plan of God so that he could provide the sacrifice needed to cleanse us from sin before raising up again three days later to demonstrate that he was and is king and lord over all existence. There is no wiggle room here. There is no neutrality here. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? I'm not giving an altar call today. I'm throwing down a gauntlet. If Jesus is truly Lord and God, then turn from your sins and follow him. But don't insult him by acting like you can put off this question. Now, there is one more statement that Simeon makes that we need to consider before we move on. And that's in verse 35. He pauses in his prophecy about Jesus. To note, that, note to Mary that a sword will pierce through her own soul also. This is a heartbreaking and tender acknowledgement of what Mary is called to suffer as Jesus' mother. She will see her son be mocked and defamed in his life and beaten and brutalized in his death on a Roman cross. She would hear the heartbreaking words of Jesus from the cross telling his beloved disciple John to take care of her in his stead. She would look up at her mangled, almost unrecognizable child as he utters his dying words and breathes his last but. As painful as those emotional wounds would be, how much greater the joy when a few days later she is told he is alive and when she sees him face to face. Simeon's words indicate that Mary would one day suffer as a mother, but she would later rejoice as a disciple whose salvation has finally come. Now, there's another faithful character we need to meet in this passage. We'll move on very quickly to verse 36, and let's meet Anna, the devoted widow. Verse 36, Luke 2. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. In this brief paragraph, we get a well-rounded description of who Anna is. Again, only time she's mentioned in scripture is this moment. She's called a prophetess, which puts her in some select company among uh, the Old Testament saints like Miriam and Deborah, Hannah and Huldah. We should recognize that this title of prophetess doesn't just mean that she gave words about the future as Simeon just did in the previous verses, but prophecy is much about forthtelling the word of God as it is foretelling future events. Anna's longevity as an unofficial member of the temple courts could have meant that she had listened to and learned enough of the scriptures that she was able to teach the other women in the court of the women about God's promises to Israel. We should also be careful to recognize that this title of prophetess does not mean that Anna was considered a priest or a pastor or had any role of church authority. That would be inconsistent with the teaching and practice of the Old Testament, as well as the later revelation of the New Testament writings. It's often a temptation in our our day to try to read back into the text of Scripture our own preferences and biases, but doing so would be a misuse of the text, and it would frankly be unfair to Anna herself. Instead of doing that, let's receive her as she is and recognize her praiseworthy traits described here. Now, she's called a daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. We should note that Asher is actually near the region of Galilee. It's funny, because in John 7, 52, the chief priests and scribes argue that Jesus cannot possibly be a prophet because no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, our sister Anna would beg to differ. Anna is a widow. And the the Greek wording here for, for this Verse is a bit unclear as for how long she was a widow. We we see that she was married for seven years before losing her husband and then never never married again. Now the original Greek could be read to say that she was she was a widow until the age of eighty four, as the text says here. But it could also be translated that she was a widow for eighty four years. Now, given the fact that she was married seven years, she's probably a teenager when she got married. It's possible that Anna could be anywhere from eighty four to well over a hundred. What does she do with her life? What is she doing? How she spent her widowhood? She did not depart from the temple, but worshiped with fasting and prayer night and day. She was so devoted to the worship of God that she may not have ever left the temple grounds. It's not mentioned that she had any children or relatives. So one commentator suggests she may have been given a place to live there in one of the outbuildings on site, uh, one of the almshouses or something like that, and her daily needs were cared for by the priests. This is, a, this is the very model of a faithful, needy widow that Paul tells Timothy the church should help support in 1 Timothy 5, verse 4. Paul says, To honor such a widow who is truly a widow, left all alone, who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's Anna. I should note briefly here that at University Park we seek to be faithful in caring for the needs of widows. Um, our deacons do an incredible job, it's often thankless, often invisible. But they do an incredible job in responding quickly to requests and for assistance and needs. So I would say to you, sisters, you who are widows, you who are left alone, who may not have family around, If you have any physical needs, the deacons of our church, stand ready to come to your aid. Let us know whenever there are issues that arise that our church family can help you and minister to you. Because that's what we are here to do as God's people, to be your family. Now, verse 38 reads that as Simeon was praising God for the baby that was in his arms, Anna was making her slow journey across the temple court. The text says that at that very hour, possibly that very moment, she joined Simeon in giving thanks to God. And she spoke of God to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She picks up the same theme that Simeon does of the salvation of God's people finally coming to pass in the arrival of his Messiah. Now, this detail, I think, is, is really, really cool. In the Old Testament, frequently, several times it says that for a matter to be confirmed or affirmed, whether a legal matter, court case, or something else, it needs to be affirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses, right? God has provided, in this moment, two witnesses, really three if you count the parents as, as, a, as a witness, Three witnesses that the Messiah had come. He provides his own evidence, testimony, from faithful witnesses, character witnesses who are devout and devoted and righteous at Israel, testifying the Messiah is here. Can you see in this passage the important place that older widows and widowers have in a church family? Think of this. These saints who loved the Lord and devoted to him were among the first to testify to the people about who Jesus really is. Luke continues this theme of faithful widows throughout his gospel, and the other gospel writers confirm that widows and widowers and older saints have an important role to play in the New Testament church. In bearing witness to God's faithfulness, in praying for God's people. So I would say to you, older brother, older sister, even in a season where you may be growing physically weaker, where your heart may be growing fearful, where you may be tempted to pull back from other people for one reason or another. Can I encourage you? This is the very time to step out in faith, to stay connected to this family. Pray for us. Pray with us. Serve with us in whatever capacity you can. Write notes of encouragement. Make phone calls. Care for children. Just pray through your church directory. We need it. We depend on you. There's much work yet to do. And as God's servant, your efforts, whatever they are, will not return void. Now, there's one final character as as we're getting close. I promise we're almost done. One final character I want us to look at as we close one final faithful character in this passage, that is the boy Jesus himself. Let's look at these last two verses. Verse 39 and 40 of Luke 2. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they were turned into Galilee, to so their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, this text says that Mary and Joseph completed their obligations to the law of Moses, and they went to their own city of Nazareth in Galilee. But you may notice this seems really quick, doesn't it? This verse seems to skip a few years in the timeline. If you recall from Matthew's Gospel, Joseph and Mary return first to Bethlehem. They are later greeted by the the Magi, the wise men. And then they flee to Egypt to escape the snare of Herod, who wants to kill any recently born kings of the Jews. Luke doesn't mention any of this. Now, some critics of the Scriptures have tried to use this as an argument that Well, perhaps Matthew made up the whole Egypt uh, story, Uh, but this seems like a pretty weak argument since the tragic events of Bethlehem took place during the lifetimes of Matthew's audience, or at least their parents, so that such a bold-faced fabrication could have been easily refuted. The simpler answer, I think, is that in terms of Luke's narrative, it really didn't affect what he was trying to do. Remember what we've said before, the gospel writers focus on different things, and they uh, uh, organize information in different ways to tell a certain story or to make a certain point. Luke was ready to... Oh, well, I mean, Remember, he was writing to Theophilus. He wrote this book to confirm and support what Theophilus knew about Jesus already. Luke was trying to move things forward to get to Jesus' ministry. Thus, this is a time jump. I include this, I mention this just because if you hear these criticisms, I don't want to throw you off. You'd be like, oh, I don't know how to answer that. It's been answered. Luke doesn't have to detail every single event that happens in Jesus' life to write his gospel. He focuses on certain stories, certain incidents, certain interactions in order to tell the story of salvation of Jesus Christ. So how does Luke describe the early boyhood of Jesus? Well, he says that the child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Notice Jesus was fully human, so he had to grow up, as humans do. He had to learn how to walk and talk and reason. He had parents and later brothers and sisters. He became like us in every way, except that he never sinned. The foolishness that is so often bound up in the heart of a child was not in his heart. So he didn't need to be rebuked and disciplined the way other children did. Now the phrase here, became strong, is pointing towards growing strong in spirit. Jesus' reason and judgment and willingness to obey God and his parents was strong. He was filled with wisdom from a young age. Wisdom is the moral intelligence, the ability to take the instructions of the scriptures and apply it rightly. Above all, the grace and blessing of his father in heaven was upon him in his childhood years. Even at a tender age, he was being prepared for the very mission of redemption that the old man and woman at the temple foretold when Jesus was a baby in his mother's arms. This mission starts to come into focus in the next passage, but for now, we close our time here. Christmas time is over now. The faithful ones of God have come, joyful and triumphant, this time to Jerusalem, to come and behold him who was born king of angels. And their call rings out over the centuries, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. That's the question that's now posed to you. This Jesus, the fulfillment of Old Testament laws, the poetry of the psalmist, the writings of the prophets, he's not just a baby in a manger or a boy in a carpenter shop. He is Lord and King over all creation, and he calls now for you to bow your knee and swear allegiance to him. If you have not yet done so, do so now. This is your invitation. Come and adore him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have fulfilled your promises. That you have brought salvation to the peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. We praise you because you are faithful. And so we now will faithfully come and adore our Lord. Thank you for our salvation. And I pray if there is anyone here who can hear my voice who has not known Jesus as Lord, that this would be the day that they bend their knee and they say, yes, I believe it. It's true. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.